All right. Okay, perfect. So, uh, how many of you uh, know me from my blog at ratherbewriting.com? Raise your hand. The rest of you don't? Okay, so let me just introduce myself a little bit. My name is Tom Johnson. Uh, I work down in San Jose at a company in the fraud detection space uh, called 41st Parameter. Um, and I blog a lot, which is how a lot of people tend to know me and how I'm visible. And one of the things that I've been writing about lately is, um, <clears throat> uh, well, I've been comparing some things, but really this presentation is not necessarily a, a, a hard-nosed tools comparison by any means. This talk is really more about innovation and how we can move beyond our little tech -com world of tools where we have our own help authoring tools that are in this little sphere all on its own into the larger world of web tools uh, where the rest of the world seems to be driving innovation and, and where so much momentum is in terms of uh, new things coming out, new tools, new techniques, and so forth. Um, Oh, sorry. We know where I can't. Okay. You don't like the shadow puppets? And your shirt is really hard to read. Okay. So let me start by describing kind of a dilemma that I, a, a good dilemma that I found myself in. One of the things I love about this area is the startups, right? Every, almost every other company is a startup. And at startups, documentation is a little bit different. Actually, it's a lot different. Um, and my current company, they, uh, during the interview, said, look, we really want you to take our PDFs and bring them into the world of online help. Uh, somehow get us out of this PDF world into some kind of web-based help. And uh, this, was, this fit me perfectly because I, I had done WordPress consulting for a number of years. I, I love the web, the interactions, the technologies. And so this was right up my alley. Um, but in looking at what's available in terms of help authoring tools and approaches, there's kind of a growing dissatisfaction that I, I think a lot of us feel. I mean, there's so many different tools, first of all, but there's, there's a lot of people who, who uh, are disgruntled in some way or another. And I made a comment on my blog, and another blogger, Mark Baker, at every page is page one, summed it up. He says, he's talking about my journey, I guess. He, he, had, he, he had known what sort of tools I'd used over the past six, seven years. And he says, as to what your journey says, I think it says that all the current models of tech comm development are deeply unsatisfactory in one way or another. I talked about um, my journey through help authoring tools. I used Flare for a couple of years. And then I switched to MediaWiki and tried the wiki route. And then I tried structured authoring. And I guess I found something I didn't like about any of them. So when this opportunity presented itself at, at, at 41st Parameter to figure out um, a new way of doing, or, or a way of doing web help, um, we sat down in this, in this room that we called, or this time period we called Think Big Thursdays, where once a, once a week on Thursday, you sit down in a room and you try to come up with some way to move the needle forward at your company. So our primary objective was to move the needle forward by putting help online. And we had lots of time to figure out the best way to do it. Um, yeah? Can you Oh, not really. <laughs> yeah. So uh, once I find my mouse cursor, thanks. All right. Just type escape. No, there we go. So. 
During this time, basically the question presented itself. If you could design any help system you wanted from scratch, uh, any technology you wanted, what would you do? What would be the perfect help system? Just take a minute and wipe away all the legacy kind of tools and, and, and other constraints. What is the perfect way to do help? Or what's the best way to do it? Of course, it depends on a lot of requirements. But let's assume that you, know, you don't have some insane, uh, crazy requirements. You're creating a help system for a complex product. Um, and we wanted to do something, right? Something that worked really well. Um, and before we kind of launch into this, this story of what we did and what worked and what didn't, uh, I want to take a step back and talk about innovation uh, and, and how it works and how it sometimes doesn't. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever heard the story of Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone and telegraph, uh, it's a great example of how innovations work. Um, when, uh, before the telephone, people used telegraphs, right? And Alexander Graham Bell uh, had developed early models of the telephone, but it didn't work very well. Um, when he presented some, some of the early models of the telephone to Bell, uh, the company, they rejected it. They laughed at it because it worked so poorly. It was staticky. It didn't really communicate. It doesn't allow people to communicate well. And they rejected it. And then Alexander Graham Bell kept working on the phone more and more. And the phone got better and better until one night, or one day, the phone the phone's technology was much better than the telegraph, and it put the telegraph companies out of business. You've seen the same thing with Netflix and Blockbuster, right? You used to see Blockbuster around, now it's just kind of a joke. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia. When Wikipedia first launched its ambitious uh, uh, mission to become an encyclopedia of all human knowledge, it was kind of crazy. And then in 2012, Encyclopedia Britannica closed its doors. They're no longer, they're no longer an operating business. Uh, and you see this in a lot of other areas as well. Um, so there's a, there's a framework for analyzing innovation by this guy named Clayton Christensen. And he's got this, this graph here that shows, I know there's a lot of arrows here. It's probably not the best looking graph. But when you have um, a company that is, has a mainstream technology uh, they have a certain level of performance, and there's, when they make improvements, Christensen calls these sustaining innovations. So you, you make a small improvement to your product, new feature, your, your 7.8 release, and people are happy, and it's performing at the high end of the market. Whereas on the back burner, or on the, on the low band here, you've got a developing technology. Its performance is not as good, but it's getting better, and you can see the trajectory. That is, it's becoming better and better at a, a faster pace. Um, eventually, there'll become a point where this, take, this developing technology takes over the, the mainstream technology. So, for example, when Netflix's streaming worked and people had the bandwidth to consume it, basically it took over. And, and, and once it takes over, it becomes disruptive and puts the other technology out of business. Yeah. Uh, assist, okay, so a sustaining innovation might be with Netflix, you can browse by um, your favorites. Or you have, you know when they came out with, uh, you can log in and, and choose by profile so that when you go in, it knows that you're not your kids, so it doesn't show you recommendations of cartoons, it shows you recommendations of what you've seen. That's a sort of small innovation. It's not a huge thing, but it's kind of personalized. 
and, and we do this all the time with products. You, you come out with uh, some new feature, a new car comes out, for example, that has maybe uh, better suspension. Whereas a, a disruptive innovation is a self-driving car. All right, so major things. That, and these, these disruptive innovations, they, they send ripples through the market and they can put the big, big players out of business. So what have been some of the innovations in, in the field of technology? We've seen massive things. Every, every sort of innovation from HTML5 to REST APIs, scalable vector graphics, augmented reality, just kind of on and on and on. Um, with ideas, we've also had a, a huge kind of uh, revolution of ideas. You've got crowdsourcing, you've got the semantic web, um, a lot of these social coding, I'm gonna kind of touch on that later. But when it comes to tech comm, what are really the innovations that we've seen in this field in the last, I don't know, 50 years? Uh, maybe information typing could be an innovation, minimalism, a lot of these aren't really sort of revolutionary, well, some of them could be considered revolutionary, but they're not necessarily um, entire game changers. Um, one of the things Mark Baker says is the game changer when it comes to innovation with TechCom, beyond all these other things, is this idea that everyone is a technical writer. Um, before, before the web, basically there was a hierarchical dissemination of, dissemination of information. Uh, the technical writer was the one who distributed the knowledge. After the web, or once the web is introduced, now everybody shares information with each other. And that has been like the major idea evolution and technology evolution of the web in our field. Um, this is a great example from Stack Overflow, right? If you need help for something, you search, you land on a Stack Overflow, Overflow page. Some technical, tech, sorry, some technologist, maybe a developer, has an answer. He or she is not necessarily a technical writer, but they're providing the information you need and thereby performing the role of a technical writer. Um, so I actually asked Mark, I said, well, why, why then do I have a, a sort of job as a technical writer? If everybody's a technical writer now, and if you look at job trends uh, for technical writers, they kind of, um, well, it's hard to measure, but if you look for instances of technical writer on Indeed, they go down, and the job count has flatlined. So you probably can't read it here, but basically, uh, seven years ago, there were the same number of technical writers as there are measured in 2013. So the, number of, the amount of technology has no doubt increased, uh, but the number of technical writers has sort of stayed the same. And the question to ask is, how do we, how do we evolve? How do we not become sort of this, uh, this relic of the past? Um, how do we keep our profession uh, innovative and relevant? Um, there's, a, there's a guy, Jason Calacanis, who wrote an article on uh, why Microsoft uh, sort of uh, tanked. And he says that in the last five great innovations, search, mobile, social, open source, the cloud, Microsoft has failed to stay relevant. Uh, they, they really haven't, haven't lost, or they haven't won in any of these major markets. Uh, Google took search, uh, Apple took mobile, uh, Amazon has the cloud, and Facebook has, has social and so forth. Um, and they said that one reason is that Microsoft really failed to invest in long-term R&D, research and development that would uh, 
really invest in the, in the disruptive sort of innovations rather than just focusing on the sustaining innovations. And they paid dividends to their shareholders rather than investing it into research, into innovation. Um, so there are dilemmas with trying to be innovative. And the first dilemma is as soon as you start developing some new idea, some, some innovation, uh, you lose a lot of productivity. So if you are... Um, if you're expected to turn around documentation at every release, right, and you're suddenly pursuing some new solution, some new tool, uh, then you're going to have a lot to answer for, right? You're going to have to basically work lots of overtime, your own personal time. You're going to have to um, find ways to be innovative while you are pressed for documentation. Usually have lots and lots of legacy content. Um, so no matter uh, what cool new, new system you try to develop or do, if you've got thousands of pages of material trapped in a specific structure, it makes it very difficult to innovate. Um, finally, or another reason is we're not really engineers by and large, so to try to build something, a new sort of help method or authoring system, requires engineering skills that most of us don't have. And finally, if you try to steer your career in a direction that's kind of an obscure technology, um, it can hurt your, your, your uh, marketability, right? If you're suddenly an expert in Acme, whatever, and everybody else is looking for data, flare, and so forth, um, it can be hard to kind of maintain this high level. So uh, there's a lot of pressure as well to conform to mainstream technology. Um, this is, this is representative of a conversation I had at a conference. I was talking with some people and she said, a person said, oh, so Tom, what tools do you use for help authoring? And at the time we were at, um, I was at another company, we used Drupal, so forth, Google Docs to create the content and publishing it on Drupal. And she said, well, you know, I, I really thought a, a professional like you would be using Dita. There's this tremendous sort of pressure to, to conform to DITA uh, and other sort of XML standards. Um, <clears throat> all right, so during this course of, of or during this, this effort to try to come up with a help authoring tool, we actually did use DITA. Um, that was our first implementation is we decided to uh, put all our content in Oxygen XML um, and, and use the web help output from that and basically structure our content that way. So I did a pilot uh, to kind of show my team how it would go and moved a bunch of content. We didn't have mountains of content, but a couple hundred pages or so, um, depending upon how you chunk them up, uh, to, to did it and, and lived in that. But there's so many limitations I kept running into. Um, for example, a lot of API doc sites have um, navigation tabs in them so that you can jump from one code language to another in, in samples. Uh, this is from Twilio's site. And you can see that you can, you can go from language to language and it, it seems very sort of standard on the web. This is nothing special. But you try to do this in DITA and it's really hard. In fact, you try to do anything in DITA and it's really hard. When you try to um, implement uh, any kind of jQuery plugin, for example, a show hide, um, you usually have to figure out how the data elements get converted into HTML 
and make sure that the HTML maps to the right jQuery triggers and so forth. It's, it's, it's a lot more cumbersome. And some things just aren't possible. Um, like if you wanted to have a list and then have navigation tabs in there and then continue your list, Dita's information typing would outlaw that because you're introducing elements that are not allowed. And I ran into this and I, I, I did all kinds of cool jQuery plugins and techniques, but eventually I got tired of it. And um, I started to realize that so much on the web um, is built uh, around sort of other technologies. Um, it, did, it, it seems like the web and XML are, are somewhat drifting farther apart. And here's a great example. Um, with, with the responses that you get from a, from a REST API, it used to be that XML was a common response and, and maybe JSON, but now pretty much most REST APIs return JSON as the format, which is a, a JavaScript object notation and allows you to easily parse it using JavaScript and push it onto an HTML page. Um, and the, the other technologies that web developers and designers use look more like this. They use Ruby on Rails, PHP, uh, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Ajax, jQuery. And so when you try to, when you try to put content on the web uh, using an architecture that is more print-based, um, that's not really in the same momentum as the web, um, it's like a losing battle. And at one point I, I had a, a, an epiphany. I decided that innovation on the web is, or the web is where innovation is really happening. And if I wanted to keep up, uh, TechCom needs to ride the wave of, the, the wave of innovation on the web. Um, it's hard to try to go in this other track in a tool chain and tool set that isn't really what so many people on the web tend to use. Um, and there's one great sort of web tool that you see a lot is, is GitHub. Um, GitHub is, is, a, is a revision control system, uh, but it's, it's more than that. It's how people are collaborating, versioning, and sharing content on the web in developer spaces. Um, I, I had a podcast with a guy named Joe Malin who said that GitHub, in my humble opinion, is one of the most revolutionary things that has happened in software in 20 years. Um, and he's a technical writer. He, he worked in the API doc space. And part of, the, part of GitHub's revolutionary power is the fact that you have these living code samples that can be maintained on different local machines each time they pull from the source. Um, you don't have to have people uh, separately coding and, and sharing through zip files or something. Um, it allows this, this phenomenon called social coding. Somebody takes your code, clones it, makes an enhancement, releases it, and so forth. And this process can, can be recursive and, and feed back into the original source. Um, so I wondered, you know, what about, what about help systems? Why can't we use GitHub? Uh, think about what if everybody's help were an open GitHub repository that you could simply go in and clone? You know, you don't have to have some fancy vendor tool. You've got many different help systems, and you, you take one that looks good, and you, you clone it, and then you enhance it. And this is sort of an approach of, you, of treating documentation as, as code. Rather than having it locked into some tool, you've got um, actual, uh, you're using text editor, 
you're using text file formats, you're using revision control. Um, if we were to break it down, uh, you're authoring, you know, rather than opening up a specific sort of tool, you open up a text editor. Um, you, you share through source control, through the, like a GitHub repository and so forth. Um, <clears throat> in fact, this, uh, this slide is just code. Somebody has a, a slide deck called Reveal.js that's made out of HTML5. And uh, all it is is uh, code that has special styles in JavaScript. And so you don't have to use PowerPoint. You, this is what that slide looks like. It's a section element and an H2 element and so forth. And it can transform it. Um, and it's somewhat liberating not to be in a, in a specific tool. To just say, look, everything is code. Let's just treat it like that. <clears throat> well, there's a new sort of breed of these tools on the web called static site generators. And, and they're, they're kind of one of the disruptive technologies that, is, that are taking place. Um, people are tired of these database solutions like WordPress, Joomla, Drupal, that have these heavy infrastructures. Uh, that have, in order to set up WordPress, for example, on your own host, you need to have Linux, and you need to have Apache, and MySQL, and PHP, and it has to be configured just right. Uh, <clears throat> well, if you're just serving static content, you're not doing anything dynamic, it's kind of a waste. So a lot of people have uh, different tools. A uh, popular one, Jekyll, Middleman, Wintersmith. There's actually 390 or something uh, static site generators, and you can see them by going to static gem. The static gen, this site kind of bubbles up uh, the most popular ones. I have a yeah. How would you from a <clears throat> so in a dynamic site like WordPress, your content lives in a database, and then you have a theme. And when when you load the site in the browser, you make a call to the database that gets the content and puts it dynamically into the theme. Whereas a static site compiles everything on your machine, it puts all the content in the right templates, and then you push it onto the web, and there's no calls to any database. All the content is right there. So like a navigation bar, for example, it'll, it'll, when it compiles, it pushes out onto every single file, rather than like calling it dynamically from a database. Um, all right. so. Here's a little more about static site generators, right? They're, they're lightweight. They're just HTML. Patrick. Is there a time when you'd rather go one direction than the other, like depending on how sure. well they scale or something? Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, obviously, different technologies are right for different solutions. And so it's hard to make generalizations about what would work in what situation. If you for example, are logging in users, and you're trying to personalize the experience for that user, you know, you probably won't need a database. But in most documentation systems, it's, they're just static files, and you don't really need, you need to dynamically personalize stuff. Um, so these lightweight, lightweight tools don't have any databases. They don't have any infrastructure requirements other than a browser. Uh, <clears throat> they, they are super secure. And finally, they're very flexible. You can get right into the source. They're all open source. And you can hack away at whatever kind of solution you want. So I started to play around with uh, a tool called Jekyll. Uh, it's one of the most popular ones. Hey, how's it going, Andrew? It's one of the more popular ones. And you know, honestly, there's probably a lot of different tools. And they all work 
somewhat similarly. They're, think of them like apples. Uh, some are Fuji apples, some are Red Delicious, some are Granny Smith, but they're all apples. Um, and the way it works is you basically launch, uh, you, you, you write in a text editor, but you um, use the terminal to launch or a continuous build of the site, and then you can watch it in your browser. So you type away, and then when you make an update, it knows that you've saved something, and it rebuilds the site, and you can see it immediately on the browser. It's, it takes between one second or more, one to two or three seconds, depending upon how, how much content you have. But basically, that's the setup, right? You're watching the site continuously build. You don't have a WYSIWYG <laughs> editor in order to, to do things. So I, this is a theme that I, I built using Jekyll. Uh, that's more suited towards documentation. This has like a sidebar. It's got, it's built on something called Bootstrap, which uh, plugs into a web framework so you don't have to create all these components from scratch. Um, <clears throat> but you can take basically any sort of HTML code and just plug in some Jekyll tags, um, the, right, the right sort of framework tags, and they're super simple. And you can make the site look like any, any sort of brand you want. Um, you could completely skin it, and you can completely uh, build it from scratch, or take uh, like an existing theme. Um, Does this make any, any, any uh, assumptions about the nature of your content? It sounds like it's all like text-based. Uh, no, you, I mean graphics, video, uh, rich media. Sure, you can actually embed scalable vector graphics right in there, um, just like any web page. Anything you can do on the web, you, you can do with these static site generators. Was there a specific type of media you're thinking of? Well, I'm thinking of graphics as integrated with text so that sometimes you, yeah. you don't necessarily want to edit the JPEG to change the text inside it, and, but you want like all the elements on the page to retain spatial relationships to one another as opposed to just pouring them into different buckets based on what you're doing with HTML. Uh, so you're trying to make them, wait, my, let me see if I understand. You're trying to make like you're trying to make your content fit into a template that you have set up for for the content so that it flows yeah. correctly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, you, you control everything through style sheets if you want CSS style sheets. But but yeah, I, even though I've been emphasizing the text editor sort of nature, yeah, it, it takes media. You throw in an image, and basically, if you wanted to make it always float to the right, you would create a style to, to float it to the right, and then you just apply that style to the content, or you have it automated. <clears throat> Usually, you don't have to like build a theme from scratch. You would take an existing one. Um, for example, this, this doc theme, I put it on GitHub. Anybody can clone and fork it and, and see how different things are done. That's one of the beauties of, of these open source technologies, is that it's completely open. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to try to guess how, it, how it's done. For example, with Madcap Flare, if you want to know how they do uh, tags or something, good luck. Uh, you have to break open the source code if, you can ev if it's even uh, viewable, and then try to sort through all kinds of proprietary .NET code or something from the back. Um, <clears throat> with, with these static site generators, you, you can download anything, open it up, and make sense of the file, and copy it. Uh, uh, just learn from it, or use it wholesale, and then re-release re it, usually. So there's five reasons why I think static site generators uh, could be a disruptive technology. All right, so one is they fit right into web technologies. You're using HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, 
you're not kind of, you're not trapped into any kind of um, <clears throat> XML architecture that you're going to have to transform using a special style sheet um, that you buy from a vendor and then it only looks a certain way because it costs thousands to get it customized that way and so forth. Uh, you're just working with the web technologies that any UX person would. Um, you can plug into technologies like Bootstrap. Uh, this is, this is uh, if you've not heard of Bootstrap, raise your hand if you've heard of this. Okay, so basically when you, when you build a website, you could code all of the different components from menus and navigation uh, from scratch, or you could just download a style sheet somebody already prepared into your own website and leverage all these pre-styled pre and built components. And that's what Bootstrap is. And there's other, other sort of ones, one called Zurb Foundation. They make building websites a lot easier. Uh, for example, if you want a responsive design out of the box, you, know, you could go to town with media queries in your own style sheet and figure it out after days and weeks. But you could also just use an existing Bootstrap framework that already has all the responsive breakpoints coded, and you're done. Uh, another huge web tool is jQuery. There are plugins with jQuery. This is a JavaScript, <coughs> JavaScript language that makes JavaScript really simple. Uh, but in addition to the core language of jQuery, there are thousands of plugins. So for example, if you need a sidebar, uh, a, like a table of contents sidebar that has different levels, well, somebody's already created a plugin for that. You can just grab it. You can, you can change it. Um, and almost anything imaginable you can just pull. And this is part of the beauty of working with a web technology. So you want some of these components, you grab them and put them into your help site. I'm not saying you can't also do the same sort of thing with, let's say, um, Oxygen XML's web help output. You could grab a jQuery plugin and in, in, incorporate it into that um, as well. It's not going to be entirely as easy depending upon, upon what you're trying to do, but um, you can do it. Another huge benefit is Markdown. <clears throat> Markdown is a super simple syntax for writing HTML. Basically, you write in Markdown, you view it in a browser that will process and, sorry, you write in Markdown, and then you have some kind of filter on your site that dynamically renders that Markdown into HTML. This way, you don't have to worry about all kinds of tags, for example, P tags for paragraph tags. Uh, list tags, you, you just use like an asterisk for a bullet, you use a pound sign for a heading, uh, and you can, you can view the content. When you start to use these different tools, um, suddenly the people in your, in your work who, who are maybe UX designers, uh, and I have a great picture of UX designers, are always kind of, you know, s fancy sort of uh, stylistic people, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, they, they love working with TechCom when it's using the web, the tools of the web. We had a guy at my work who um, we were telling him about this Jekyll solution. He hadn't really used Jekyll before. So over the weekend, he played around with it, and he loved it. And he started building like these custom scripts that would go into um, JSON content and extract it and populate it into Jekyll in a certain format. You know, he used all kinds of tools that I didn't know much about. Uh, Esprima, Gulp, Parse, um, Grunt, Estraverse. I wrote a few of them down. And, you know, they're able to really go to town with the tools that they know. So if you ever have, a, like, maybe a doc portal sort of initiative where you want to have a cool help center, web presence, and you think, we're going to have to involve UX. Well, 
If you tell them, look, we, all our content is XML, you're going to have to uh, transform that XML using XSLT and XQuery and XPath and so forth, they're not probably going to be as excited. I'm not saying there aren't UX designers who could work with that, but you'll get a much better response if you're using HTML, CSS, JavaScript as your core sort of uh, foundation. Reason number two, these tools scale infinitely. Probably the biggest criticism I hear about static site generators is that, oh, that might work for a really small shop, but it definitely doesn't scale. We have hundreds of writers. Well, I was actually um, recently in, in India and got a tour of this huge facility um, called Capgemini, where they had 500 aerospace engineer technical writers working. And uh, they were doing really advanced things. Uh, but one of the people, I asked, well, what, what tools are you using? Um, they were using a variety of tools, but he said one of the big pain points was trying to um, allocate a seat for every one of their writers. You know, if you have a new project and you need 50 seats of a license and it costs $1,000 per year per seat and you're in India uh, where $1,000 doesn't go as, or goes a lot farther or things are more expensive, relatively speaking, um, it's going to be a lot harder to scale. But there's also a different kind of scalability. Um, scalability at your company. When you have a, a manager, a project manager, a UX person, an en engineer, and you want to allow them to write, you could, if you had uh, you know, the traditional model, you allocate a seat for each one of these people or some kind of contributor seat uh, to allow them a, a, a seat to be able to use the tool that you have and then they contribute. Well, that model doesn't scale very well uh, because you have to get budget for all that stuff. With, with text files, Written in Markdown, anybody can contribute. Preston. How do you avoid the free-for-all junkyard? <clears throat> well, how do you, okay. Yeah, so, well, usually you have all of your text files in a repository. And when people want to contribute to that, they can create what's called a pull request, which is kind of like, hey, will you add this? And there's usually a gatekeeper to the repository. But most people aren't really going to commit to a repository anyway. Um, I had a project manager who wanted to review content. And I was like, hmm, how are we going to do this? Um, there are various ways to review content. But uh, I ended up just sending him the text files. I sent him the whole project, said, look in this folder and grab these text files and um, make changes, send them back to me. And he did. And I opened it up and added it back into my project. Um, if I were using XML, if I sent him text files, he would open it up and he would probably uh, be like, whoa, all these tags, I don't understand what's going on. You've got you know, step and command and info, all these tasks or, or all these tags. But with, <coughs> with Markdown, it's very simple. It's very human readable. Uh, no, I mean, if you're trying to incorporate um, lots of different contributions, a wiki is great, right? You can't beat that. But the problem with any wiki is, is rot, re redundant, outdated, trivial content that just becomes a glut. And so one way is to, you could have people contribute to a wiki and then pull the information from there into a, a nicely organized, written, presented help site. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, wikis, I'm not, I'm not, 
I actually loved MediaWiki when I used that. That was one of my favorite platforms. Um, but, but when I worked on MediaWiki, there were at least a thousand pages that I, I had no idea what their status was. Was it outdated? Who wrote it? Was it still, you know, is it accurate? Who reviewed it? No idea. Um, so the wiki model sort of fails. And, and when people don't contribute to a wiki, then it's even worse. It's like you have this incredibly collaborative platform that nobody is contributing to. So either people contribute and it becomes full of junk, or people don't contribute and it's like a waste of the collaborative interactive technology. Anyway. Um, all right, another reason, I'm going to skip past that one. Another reason is content APIs. So let me, I, I want to pause here for a brief little demo of something. And, uh, oh, <clears throat> yeah, I shouldn't hit escape. <laughs> okay, where's my cursor? <clears throat> Dan, war Dan warned me about demos and I should have listened to him. All right. Um, let me just come back. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> okay. Uh, where's the one I want to show? Okay. So, <clears throat> let's, have you heard of this idea of a content API? What, what do you think a content API might be? It's, <laughs> thanks. So, exactly. So people use APIs all the time to get information. For example, Twitter API allows you to get information about people's tweets, for, as a basic example. What if when you're working with your UX people, you don't have to deliver text files to them that they can add as a tooltip to something. Instead, you basically say, look, we have a content API. If you would like information about this field that you want to pull into your help, you can uh, dynamically pull it in by pointing to this um, REST endpoint, or not REST endpoint, to this endpoint. So basically with Jekyll, what you can do, and you can do this with a lot of tools, you can create a format that will <clears throat> loop through all your content and push it into a JSON file. And then you can put that JSON file on your help server, give people permission to access it, and then uh, UX people basically just call that JSON file, look for a certain tag, and incorporate it into a tooltip. So this is an example of doing it. These are just basic popover tooltips from Bootstrap that are calling this other site where the information is and uh, these are, these, this is the format that has been generated with the JSON. So, you know, real APIs have a lot more functionality. It's essentially just a JSON file on a server. But um, it's one of the things you can do single sourcing all your content rather than, you know, having separate duplicate instances of the content. And you can create all kinds of um, different templates. If you want to push your content into like a CSV format, or uh, a custom format. A lot of times with, with API documentation, people do develop a custom format um, that, that, that they want to push their content into. So you're really not limited to just HTML. All right, um, <clears throat> jump through this. Okay, last reason is open source. Um, I think that open source would be the biggest thing to hit the tech comm world ever. Uh, so much, of, so much of our tools are really wrapped into specific vendors. Granted, Dita is open source, but pretty much to use it, you need a vendor's tool to, to parse it and to display it in a way that people can, can consume. But imagine if, if uh, everybody in here um, had some kind of open source help system that was on GitHub, and you wanted to grab it 
you could. It would be an amazing sort of way to, to move things forward. People could, could, could build on the code, contribute it back. Um, yeah, Monique. When you say open source code <clears throat> system, do you mean the code that enables uh, yeah, that, any content to be displayed, or do you yeah. mean the actual content? No, no, sorry, the first one. The, the, the theme, basically. The, the, oh, the, okay. the, the foundation, not the content the itself. Right, right. Right. No. So. Okay. So the tool is what you're referring to. Yeah. And okay. and my at my organization, I have uh, this doc theme that I've developed, and its content just has a bunch of instructional information about the theme. Um, and then I have another project that has the same theme, but it's got all my confidential secret files, you know, that we don't want to publish on the web, uh, separate. So I push the the doc theme into GitHub. And I've actually had people, somebody created a pull request the other day. It's the first time it had happened. Uh, and they, they recommended that I change a certain style of the way the navigation was displaying. So it was kind of cool. Um, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to get to the point where lots of people would, would contribute back. But it's a nice idea. And I think uh, I, tried to, I tried to give context in the beginning, beginning about innovation because there's going to be a lot of reasons why a static site generator falls short. You're not going to do indexing. You're not going to have like great PDF transforms. It's not one of these powerhouse players yet, but it's developing. And there's a whole army of web engineers and web designers who are working on these platforms. And new things are coming out almost every, every month. Um, I just saw a new service come out called Poetica, where you basically point any GitHub file to it and it, it overlays this great like annotation uh, cap capability on it. Um, there's a new, a new collaborative platform called Beejit, which allows you to, uh, it's almost like Google Docs, but with markdown content. So you can add Beejit, like B and then Git. Um, <clears throat> so uh, these tools that people are building, another one called readme.io, they, they, they're not really, for the most part, um, they're not really processing a bunch of XML content. You get to you get to write in Markdown, which is a huge relief. Um, you have you ha it makes things a lot easier and and readable <clears throat> in the text file format itself. Um, but these new tools that people are building on websites are processing Markdown a lot more than XML. I'm not saying there aren't you know new XML tools coming out. Uh, there there are, but but. I think the pace of innovation is just, it's unparalleled on the web. And when we confine ourselves to just this tech com world of, well, you can choose Authorit, Flare, RoboHelp, or Oxygen. Or you can spend a million dollars and buy a big fancy content management system. And those are your only options. It's really a limited point of view. And, and it's, it's going to trap tech writers in this world where they can't really, they can't really maintain pace with the web. They can't create websites that look like the modern web. They've got these kind of dated tripane help, very 1990-ish looking outputs and functionality um, that are always going to uh, ne never really get the attention um, in a good way of, of users, product managers, and so forth. Of course, the information itself is usually the biggest asset, right? And all the other window dressing may, may just be considered uh, decorative, but really there's a, lot of, there's a lot more to it than that. So here's my, my main point. Okay? There's, there's, if you look at bubbles, 
Techcom is a very small bubble, and the web is a huge bubble. Uh, the web is full of many, many people developing new technologies, putting them out there for people to use. And um, maybe Jekyll's not the one. You know, maybe, maybe I sunk a lot of time developing some theme on a solution that's going to be <clears throat> gone in five years. Who knows? Um, <clears throat> in fact, you know, I, I actually thought Jekyll was a lot bigger than it, than it really is. But uh, I, mean, I met the lead developer. They had a GitHub sort of uh, hosted meeting. I was all excited, went downtown, thought there was going to be this huge like Jekyll party. There was, there was 15, 20 pizzas. And basically, there was the GitHub employees, about four of them, and, and two other uh, community people, and then the lead developer. So we're all kind of looking around like, hmm. <laughs> uh, but but um, even, even if Jekyll itself doesn't have this, I mean, compared to WordPress, it's tiny. Um, there's like 60, for example, if you want to see how many people are following a technology, go to Stack Overflow, look at a tag, and see how many people are following that tag. There's about uh, 75 people following Jekyll and like 7,500 people following WordPress. So different technologies have different popular popularities, but the number of static site generators is pretty staggering. I mean, it's not just one, there, there, there are hundreds. And those in aggregate do show a huge sort of momentum. All right, so let me just finish this thought. Um, look outside the TechCom bubble, and I have a few strategies for innovation. Um, this is actually the original focus of this, this talk. I've sort of tried to repurpose this and not sure if it really worked. But um, if you want to be innovative, you want to leverage the latest technologies, look outside the TechCom bubble, find innovation on the web, and then share your, your code back. Um, and that last part is something that I really want to emphasize. I think that you know, there's, there's different levels of sharing. You can share your, your code, which is definitely helpful. You can also share your expertise uh, through blogging, through help sites, whatever. Um, there's a lot that, that can be gained from that. I'm always surprised by how few technical writers actually blog. Um, and I think that's a great way to share. Okay, so that's about all I had. I, I, I can get into really specific comparisons between the two, but uh, let me check the time and see. What, what are we at? We've got plenty of time if you need it. Okay, all right, now we'll get into some. This part is very specific, and you probably can't see that. So these are all online. It's actually in a GitHub repository. Uh, you go to bit.ly.com slash Jekyll versus Ditta, you'll, you'll get rerouted to the right place. Authoring, I've got like eight different comparison points between the two. By the way, um, I, know, I know that there's going to be at least a few people who are you know, really into Ditta, and I'm by no means really trying to slam Ditta and promote Jekyll. I'm just trying to compare the two, uh, because I've used both. I did a complete pilot with Ditta, a complete pilot with Jekyll, and really got a sense for how the two differ. Um, yeah. Have you guys seen these differences? Uh, or maybe it would be afterwards. What I'm still completely baffled yeah. about is you talked about uh, Jekyll being, you know, you develop your team and all that. I still have absolutely no idea how you actually get any output with it. Oh, okay. And at some point, if you could reference that, I don't know if that's going to be one of your differences yeah. or afterwards. <clears throat> Give us an idea how you get a page into it and what it looks like. Yeah. Um, all right. I could, I could just do that quickly as a demo. Uh, 
if every, if anybody sure. else is let me, I don't want to derail your presentation. Let, let me just, okay. let me sit this because way though, I really because. I don't have any concept yet. Okay, so you're comparing it, but I don't know what the end result is. <clears throat> All right. Okay, so let me change something here because otherwise I won't be able to move around my mouse very well. So, so I'll show you kind of the workflow. Arrangement, mirror displays. Okay, hopefully that won't be so big that I can't have any room. <clears throat> yeah, you can still see that. So you use a text editor, and I've tried Sublime Text, Atom, Emacs, but the best one, in my opinion, is something called IntelliJ. Uh, they, they also make, I mean, their core product is this um, Java IDE, but basically they've got another one called WebStorm that's just a stripped down version. And you come in here, and let me, let me open up the theme. <clears throat> so, I've just got some shortcuts here. Uh, one of the benefits of having it already in your vendor list, all the engineers had access and I just asked for a copy. So. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's comparable to that. Okay, so when you open up your Jekyll project, you usually want to preview it as you build the content. So in order to preview it, preview it, you need to run a certain command line. So this is this is a iterm. Usually you have terminal, but um, you want to see where you're at. Present working directory. Now the uh, doc theme I've got uh, is in here, so I'm going to change directory into here, and then to build it. I'm going to type Jekyll serve. And what this is going to do is it's going to build the theme and continuously build it whenever I make changes. You can disable that, but uh, I'm going to copy this little preview URL. So it kind of has like a local host on your own machine. And then I'll come up here, paste it in, and you can see I don't have enough space to actually design the whole or to show the whole theme, so it's showing the responsive view. Um, let's see if I, if this in full screen mode also shows the responsive view. Yep, okay. Zoom out the browser? Okay. <laughs> so there we go, yeah. Um, so, uh, and there's still not much space, but, because you can see there's not enough space there. But basically, now let's make a, you can, you can navigate and so forth. Uh, let's make a change to, something. Let's say you want to add a page. Um, I'll come down here and click New. Now you can create these little templates already that pre-populate things. Um, uh, and so this is going to, sure, this is going to automatically populate it with some front matter tags. Uh, no, it's, it's local. It's local. So these front matter, all, all static site generators have these front matter tags. And you, you enter things here, like chapter test page. 
this is the, the URL path. Um, so I'll just write like that. You can add tags. Um, let's say this, this is a tag I've already defined called publishing. Keywords, let's say this is a STC. You can, this will, see I've already coded this so that I, I've decided how each of these metadata terms get mapped. So I, I built a, a little um, template that's going to pull any keywords that I put here into the page's metadata for SEO and so forth. Um, uh, and you can do other things. And, and actually use a, something called a, this little guy, a text. So if you want to type something, um, it will auto expand it. Super useful. Um, okay. So now, once you get into the content, you just start typing. So uh, for a header, you would use double double pound sign. Um, for a list, you use um, little asterisks. You can learn Markdown in like an hour. And, and let's say you run into a situation where Markdown isn't very powerful. Uh, then you can slip into HTML. You can just start writing, I don't know, whatever. Let's say you have a button or something. Uh, you just start writing HTML. But then uh, well, let's say you want to reuse a piece of content from some other place. Well, um, <clears throat> you can do that by referencing anything in the includes folder. So. Let's say I've got this um, note here, which I don't know what this is. I uh, can't remember. You just type, um, see that little shortcut key? Just, you could type all this out, or you could have some shortcuts. Um, and this is going to pull in the content here. So it, uh, this is basically a conref in data language. Um, and then you could do conditional tags, too. Let's say you, you want to have content just for a certain audience. So this is for Max, or I don't know. This is for writers. Um, this is for designers. Well, uh, you use what you use something called the liquid templating engine. So if you if you do the little if if sign here, you can suddenly start to create these conditions. So in this is accessing all. Uh, some files, sorry, some, some key value pairs in uh, the site namespace, which is basically, there's a configuration file. Let me just show you that. Um, there's a configuration file where I just have audience designer, right? And so this site is being built by the values that are specified here. And so uh, anyway, so this is not going to show because it's for the designers. Uh, but this one will. Um, so just take this to designers and change this to audience. Um, okay, so we've we've made all these these changes, and if we look at our terminal window, we can see that it's been regenerating a couple times. It took three seconds to regenerate them, and if we go over to the site, oops. I only hit save a few times. So let's see, which, where was I at? I think, sorry, uh, I've been jumping around here. Let me come back to this, this uh, URL here. I think it's the same URL here. Okay. And it was chapter page test or chapter test page. Chapter, okay, hold on. Chapter test page. 
chapter test page. And you can see uh, our content. It's just automatically built it. So the, the content that was in that front matter tag that was a summary, I decided to put it in this fancy little layout. Um, so you can create layouts that pull different parts of the content. Um, and it put that into your navigation pane on the left. Right here? No, on the left. Oh. oh OK, I was going to show you that, too. Um, before I do that, uh, yeah, I don't see the writer one either. Uh, I thought I said this is, but here's the include that we did. And okay, um, I'm getting the idea. This, this is what I was asking okay. for, a, a bit of a demo, because so, I couldn't envision what you were right. doing. Yeah. Which, which is what the framework on your machine. Oh. Yeah. All right. So it works much better with a Mac. Um, I, I don't actually think I have uh, internet access right here. But basically, you, you download Jekyll. It's a gem. It's a Ruby gem. Uh, and then let me let me jump back into terminal. Um, yeah, you've got to have Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a bunch of instructions. Yes, it's there's more than that. So getting started, all right. You you need a Mac really. You could use a PC, but it's kind of hard. People tell me they run into errors. You've got to have Ruby, Ruby Gems, Jekyll RB, and you just install these gems. Helpful to have Git in a text editor and iTerm, not, not required. Pigments is a highlighter. You can use a different one. But once you have all these, um, then you basically, uh, I've got some other instructions. But basically, you can just type that Jekyll serve command. Yeah, yeah. Well, they try, they, they're, making it, they're making it very simple. But see, I want it, most people who design Jekyll themes just have one site in mind. Whereas a tech writer, usually you want to generate 10 sites from 10 different versions of your content or whatever from the same source files. So I have a bit of a different sort of uh, setup, and that's why I have more instructions here. So your instructions are available on your GitHub site? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you can get, grab all this stuff and play around with it. Um, but uh, let, let me show you how you add something to the table of contents, because this is different. Um, so let's come back to this editor. Uh, you have this file called, you have this data file. And in this data file, or these data files, they use a syntax called YAML. So all my sidebar content is here. And sorry, here we go. YAML has, uh, basically, you have different levels of things. And each new level is set off by a couple of indents. So you have entries, subcategories, and so forth. If Let's say I want to add my new page uh, right here. I'm just going to come in. Uh, I think I copied it. Yeah. You can define like who you want to see it and so forth, whether it's available for print. You can add as many options as you want. And then um, the code will, will loop through this content. And based on different values, it can perform different functions. So as soon as you save that, or as soon as I save that, come back out here and wait two seconds and then refresh. And you can see that it's here. Um, so, yeah, that's basically the essence of it. Uh, one great thing 
about working in a text file format um, is let's say you have a bunch of code that you that you want, right? Let's this is really why people in developer spaces like static site generators is because they're super code friendly. You just paste in the code, uh, three blocks and whatever Java language, uh, and three code blocks there, and you put all the code in, in the middle here, um, and and it has great like syntax highlighting and and um, it will, will basically color code it to um, emphasize the different components. So, uh, and you don't have any kind of proprietary system manually yet. Anything else you want to want me to show you while I'm, I'm kind of in here? Um, mm, yeah, you're going to have to, like, if you have really long code, you're going to have to hit return. Otherwise, it's going to have, your theme will probably create, like, a scrollable, horizontal scrolling. So, but yeah. Yeah, so you could use, you could use tags. You could tag your content uh, right here, and then you could loop through and get all of your pages with that tag and display them there. That's how a lot of people do it. Uh, but then you have to make, sh then you have to also add like a weight here because you want to control the order and so forth. So yeah, it's probably more, it's probably somewhat common to, to create a navigation based on tags. But um, when I was at GitHub, I was asking the people how they do it, and they do it through this text file method. So um, e either way, the, the cool thing about this is that um, let's say I only wanted this chapter test page to appear to the, the writer audience. Um, well, you can create logic that basically when, when you build your site, if, if uh, the right audience isn't there, the page will get excluded. And I'm not really sure you can do that as easily with a, with a uh, tag-based navigation. Anyway, you can, you can see that you can completely get into all the different codes. So if you want to see how that page is laid out uh, and you want to add something, um, you just come in here and, and do it. For example, that page summary that I showed you, all I did is add a front matter tag that said summary, and then here I'm accessing it through the page namespace.summary, and then I can add whatever I want to it and so forth. Um, and for example, this uh, page metadata, let's say I wanted this whole little section, which doesn't look so cool here, but uh, it, it can have a lot more stuff um, up here on the side. If you want it like navigation tabs, you just grab these from Bootstrap, put, put them in here essentially, and, and you're done. And you can do all kinds of other things too. Let me, whoops. Um, if you, whatever sort of, whatever sort of framework you want, you can use. So let's say you want the, the accordion FAQs. You know, this is, a, this is a common bootstrap thing as well, and you just pop that in. Uh, or like a knowledge base layout, where you have different categories, you click a category and you get all the pages in that category. Or um, let's say you wanted uh, a scrolling feature. So this is, my colleagues have these really long JSON files that, that look like this, but like three times longer. And they've been trying to figure out the best way to document them. And so I was trying to figure something out. And there's a scroll to plugin with jQuery that somebody made. So if you, cl if you click one, it's going to show you on the right uh, the definition so you can expand. Um, and with a little bit of coding, I can make it work. 
Now, when I showed the, the UX person this, he said, you've got three scroll bars. That's just like a complete disaster. <laughs> I was like, well, great. Uh, but you, you, can, um, you can make it work. There's one plugin called Shuffle.js that I was also experimenting with. Um, you, you, you can basically uh, filter things uh, in cool ways. So let's say you just wanted to see, let's say you had like 50 of these different panes because you've got a giant knowledge management database. Uh, you select one of these guys, and bam, it filters right to what you want to see. Of course, I showed the UX designer this, and I tried to package it, package it as a Pinterest-style layout, and he was like, no, this is a definite no. So this got, this got, this got um, archived in my special layout section that I don't really use. Um, anyway, you can experiment with all these things. Any sort of plugin you want, you just add it in here. This, this search is actually um, some kind of plugin. Uh, and it's kind of an instant search and goes right to it. But you can add uh, lots of different types of searches if you wanted. Um, OK. OK. All right. So uh, yeah, I just have, have a few more comparison points, and then I'll be done to this. OK. So this is what it looks like if you're authoring content in Didit. If you're trying to say how to print a page, you, you start by adding task body, step, step section, step, command. And then if you want to just you know, bold something, you, you could just use B. But you're really supposed to use menu, cascade, UI control, and so forth. And, and all of this, um, if you wanted to try to edit it without an XML editor, good luck. Uh, because you really have to attune yourself to to not see all those tags. Um, as a writer, I like to think that I should enjoy the format I'm working in. So this same mess is just com whoops, completely avoided uh, with Markdown. This is the same content. Print a page, two steps, and you're done. Um, so now, of course, XML allows you to do more stuff, uh, but maybe you don't need all that. Here's another example. The conditional processing, um, in DITA, you add attributes inside things. So for example, paragraph tag, you would add an attribute of audience and so forth. And then you configure different uh, build, section, build scripts to run off those. Um, with, <laughs> with, with Jekyll, uh, you have access to a, a, a templating language called Liquid. It's made by a company called Shopify, uh, but it's a, a I guess it's open source. Uh, basically, you've got all kinds of conditional processing commands, as well as many, many more. Um, for example, you can do variables, which you can't actually do in, in DITA. Um, so Bootstrap uses Liquify, right? Um, Bootstrap, their documentation site, does, is built on Jekyll. You can download it, depiece it, look at it. The, the Bootstrap framework itself isn't, isn't I don't think uses Jekyll or, or Liquid at all. I think it's just JavaScript and CSS. Uh, reusing content, I showed you how to do that. In Dita, you've got this thing called Conref. You've got the same sort of functionality in Jekyll with the include. Um, I know this is really small, so <laughs> you can check out these slides later. The TSC, I showed you how to do that. In Dita, you basically have these topic references in a, in a Dita map file. In, uh, in Jekyll, you've got the option of doing the YAML file where your code loops through all the stuff. And the, the cool thing about 
The cool thing about Jekyll is that somebody like me, who's not a programmer, not a UX designer, can actually figure out how to build a table of contents. Um, whereas with, with Dita, all I know is how to put the little tags there, and I have to buy somebody's plugin that will take and process all those tags into some web help output. I'm sure I could figure it out with a few years and, and lots of time, but um, you know, it's a whole another level of, of programming. Um, but Jekyll is very accessible. Information patterns are really big in DITA. Um, these are enforced sequences of elements. So if you want to have a task, for example, you can only have one task per page um, or per, per, per task element. So let's say you have a, um, <clears throat> this is what gets me more than anything. I, I don't really understand the buzz about information typing. Um, it puts a lot of constraints on what you can and cannot do. For example, you cannot have a third level subheading in DITA. You have to, you have to somehow nest all these different elements to try to get to that level. You cannot have two tasks per topic. Um, you would have to try to either nest them or do some workaround. Uh, basically, in, in Jekyll, you're free to do whatever you want. It's kind of like Flare. You, you, Flare doesn't constrain you with information types. Um, you, can, you can even code JavaScript directly on the page. You don't have to. Uh, you, you just put it there, and it works. Uh, put your own script references. So th those two special layouts I showed, the scrolling one, I don't want to have those JavaScript files on every single page of my site. I just put them on that on, only on the page I wanted them. Um, and so it's going to load a lot faster. PDFs. Okay, this is a this is classic sort of question I get. People have PDF requirements. I, I think PDFs are really bad practice. Um, every time I give somebody a PDF and want to update the, the content, they're showing me outdated PDFs and asking me why the documentation is wrong. So um, I would say avoid them, but if you have to, you can use, oh, sorry, I didn't give Dita its fair due. Dita is awesome at PDFs. Uh, you've got plugins that are, I mean, the, the tool was really designed with PDFs in mind, I think. Um, if you have to create PDFs from Jekyll, you can actually do it using a, a tool called Prince, which is not free, it's like $500, but Basically, Prince will take a bunch of web pages that you feed it and construct a cool-looking um, guide out of it. You can add headers, footers, and so forth, and you can actually make it work. Um, not really. Uh, maybe one page at a time, but uh, created PDFs from very extensive API sites. Oh, okay. All right, maybe, maybe I just don't know it, but. Um, the, the Prince tool is, is pretty slick, you know, uh, but it's, it's not going to be easy. Uh, don't kid yourself. If you have to create a lot of PDFs, don't use a static site generator. Um, you stick with some PDF creator creation tool. Uh, reviewing content. This is another really tricky, tricky thing. How do you get your SMEs to review things? Well, with Dita, you can uh, use a little web help with feedback form in, in Oxygen XML. You can create a PDF that people can annotate. Uh, then, then there's vendor tools like EasyData that give you on, inline browser controls um, to annotate. With Jekyll, um, you've got this GitHub workflow where people can pull the content, make changes, do pull requests. It's more of a techie thing. But then there are online platforms. I mentioned Beejit, Poetica, uh, Cloud Canon uh, is a new one that allow you to collaborate more easily in an online interface. Um, and then you can embed comment forms. Any, any dynamic thing you want, you've got to embed it from a third-party service like 
a comment form, a comment. Uh, so discuss is probably the most common one. Um, so features that DITA has that Jekyll lacks, uh, enforced information types, out-of-the-box transforms beyond HTML, universal interchangeable format. So I created DITA project, I give it to you, you plug it into your system, no problem, right? I'm not going to work that way with Jekyll. My theme works how I coded it. Um, of course, Markdown will work, but uh, the rest of the site, you can't just plug and play in any other tool chain. Relationship tables, your, your very favorite usability nightmare, and indexing tools. So here are a few features that Jekyll has that DITA lacks. Um, the liquid templating language, um, the variables, tags, uh, the auto preview thing that I showed, um, custom JS and complete freedom to do whatever information patterns you want on every page. Uh, so finally, comparing the two, they're both open source. DITA is more rules based, Jekyll is more flexible and free. DITA is more vendor heavy, Jekyll is more vendor light. Uh, DITA is more CMS oriented, Jekyll is more GitHub oriented. Uh, DITA has an XML architecture, Jekyll has a web architecture, and finally, uh, DITA is more committee-driven. It has a standards committee that decides what elements are allowed and so forth, um, whereas Jekyll is more developer-driven. There's just a, a guy who, uh, he's the lead developer, and other developers get together and decide what's in the product or not, and people make arguments and decisions on the fly. Oh, finally, uh, with DITA, you'd probably use an XML editor and with Jekyll, you'd use a text editor of some kind. Um, so, which to use? Uh, basically, I won't go through this slide because I'm kind of done with the slides. Essentially, if you really like the web, you like, and you're, you're okay with code, you like C CSS and HTML, you like to work directly with, with text, um, and you don't have a huge team that you're trying to force into a specific pattern, then Jekyll would work well. But if you really do have a large team and you want them all to write a very specific way and you want to just take and process that in a big machine, <clears throat> then DITA would work well. Any questions? Any final thoughts, comments? Yeah, Lee. A couple of questions. On that last specific slide, why do you say that DITA is better for GUI documentation? Um, uh, well, that's a debatable point, I guess. I, you can just disregard that. But the question is, why did I, why did I say DIT is better for GUI documentation? I think more developers, I think what I really wanted to say here is that Jekyll's better for developer documentation um, more so than DITA. Uh, and I just needed a comparison point. But basically with, with Jekyll, engineers can write easily. They love Markdown, they can throw in code samples, it's no problem. The syntax highlighting is better. If you don't have to worry about that stuff, if you've just got like a GUI, uh, it's not really an issue. You can, the graphics and everything look just, the, just fine in Jekyll. It's nothing you, you couldn't do with, uh, for a GUI-based project. I have a question about the, the developer documentation with Jekyll. Yeah. Something that uh, you've been discussing in some of your other groups and, uh, is the ability to integrate uh, conceptual information with HTML output from something like mm. Yeah. Um, or uh, yeah. or any of those. So with Jekyll, can it's static, I understand that. Is there a way to coordinate or integrate 
externally generated HTML pages into your static site that haven't been created with the Jekyll and Markdown and all of this? You know, I, I haven't even broached that problem, um, or I haven't tried to figure out how, how that would be done. You're trying to integrate Javadocs with the rest of your content, or something like that, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I went the rounds with that for a long time. I, I, I explored. Uh, no, I gave up. I can't. There is there is somebody who created a, a solution that will take um, and create Dita from Javadocs. Right. I, I but it. And it's uh, called Doc Tools. I can't remember what it's called now. now. But uh, it, it had so many problems, and it didn't really work very well. And at the end of the day, it just didn't really it didn't fit. But um, Jekyll isn't it either that it does not take in uh, HTML that's I, been generated by some other tool. No. Okay. You could you no. Let me take that back. You could you could put it into the site. Anything you put in a Jekyll project will come out the other end. Um, whether you have the front matter, matter tags depends on how Jekyll processes it. So if you don't have any of those tags, it's not going to do anything with the file. Just like, here it is, and it'll be accessible. In the same way that, so it's not really integrated, it's just part you of the project. You really link your Jekyll written content You, you could, but they'd be hard-coded. No, I mean like um, hyperlinked uh, in any kind of you, you could, just relative hyperlinks. You just have to know the things. Like, you'd have to know the, the, the pages and stuff. And, okay. Yeah, but you couldn't manage it through any of the Jekyll technology, okay. as far as I know. Okay. Liam? Um, I have a follow-up question about community documentation. Um, how, do you have any suggestion if there are a lot of images in your documentation? Because then, uh, if you're referencing the images and you're referencing them locally, and that you need to have a, a URL path that you want to, like, you, you know, it might look fine when you're looking at it locally, but then when you actually push it, Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying you're working in a text file format. You've got an image there. You can't really see it, so you have to like look at the preview to see it, and it's kind of hard to, to really author in a, in, a, in a way that allows you to see it right in front of you. Well, um, I wouldn't worry about the second issue too much. Basically, you put the images into a folder in your, in your project, and the preview build will show you all the files that are included in that, that Jekyll project. So if it's not showing in the preview, it's not going to be in the, the output. Uh, but as far as like, the, you hit upon a bigger point. All of these text file formats really fall flat when it comes to looking at images, because all you see is the path to an image. You don't really see. You don't see it in the context of the flow when you're writing or when you're reviewing that content. So uh, you basically, the way I do it is I just look at the other, at the preview site to see the image as I'm looking in line. I don't think there's a great solution to that. Look, uh, let me just close and say that, um, you know, this, is, this has been sort of a fun project. I don't know how many times in a career you get to choose your own help system from scratch and, and just get to do it. Uh, so I, I had fun doing Dita. I was into Dita for a while. It's still a great authoring paradigm. Uh, um, 
Jekyll's fun. It's got its own challenges. They're both complicated. They're, neither of these tools are easy. Uh, if you want an easy tool, use Madcap Flare or something. Um, it's something that's out of the box. You're not going to run into problems. But I think that uh, the longer term vision is that at some point, um, I want to use tools of the web. I'm going to convert my WordPress blog into, into Jekyll because I, I'm tired of having these split paradigms where on the one hand, I'm online and I'm blogging and interacting and it's great. And then I go to work and I use some old tool that uh, doesn't integrate. I want to converge the, wor the worlds. So I'm using the same tool to publish techcom as well as blog posts and whatever. And I think um, the static site generators offer an interesting way to do that. And if you're, if you're tech savvy and you want to try something new, uh, this is a great thing to experiment with. So thanks.